Welcome to Mostly Books Meets. We're the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop in Abingdon. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life, and we hope you'll join us for the journey. On the podcast this week, we are thrilled to be speaking to author Julia Boyd. In 2017, she released the spellbinding Travellers in the Third Reich, a history of the rise of fascism told through the first-hand accounts of those who had travelled through Germany. It went on to become a Sunday Times top three bestseller and to win the Los Angeles Times Book Prize for History in 2018. In May of this year, Julia released The Wonderful A Village in the Third Reich, an eye-opening account of how the rise of fascism and Hitler marked the lives of a small community nestled in the Bavarian mountains. It is a fascinating and eye-opening read, and a great example of how even the most well-known parts of history can always find a way to surprise us. Julia Boyd, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Now, in our podcast, we always sort of start by going back to uh, the childhood days of our of our guests. Now, am I right in saying you you grew up in London as a child, but also spent quite a lot of time in the Lake District? Yes, that's right. And um, actually, my father was in the navy, so we my very early years were spent uh, abroad in Malta and South Africa. Ah, but okay, but um, most of my childhood was in London. But as you rightly say, with large chunks of it spent up in the Lake District, which of course is, is absolute paradise. I love oh, it. There and, uh, it absolutely. was a wonderful place to, to be as a child. And um, was reading always a part of your, um, your life as, as a child? Were you much of a reader then? Well, I was trying to remember. Um, I'm afraid, yes, I did like reading very much, but I'm afraid my choice of books would probably not be approved of today. I was a great fan of Enid Blyton. Oh, Enid Blyton. A whole lot. Secret Seven, Famous Five. Yes. Um, and Mallory Towers, which, like lots of oh, other of little girls of my generation, I think made me long to go to boarding school. It seems odd, doesn't it? But then I graduated from Enid Blyton to Biggles, W.E. Uh, yes. I was really a tomboy, and I didn't like dolls, and I thought most girls' things were rather sissy. And so I absolutely adored Biggles. Um, I don't know, maybe he's not familiar to some people listening to this, but he was um, a First World War pilot who flew sop with camels and had all kinds of incredible adventures. Um, So, yes, then from Biggles, I think the first first book that I read that was a sort of grown-up book and um, chilled me to the bone was Neville Schutz, On the Beach, which was published in 1957. And I think I read it when I was about 13, perhaps 14. And it was all about um, people in Australia waiting. There'd been a great nuclear catastrophe. Oh. And the people in Australia were waiting to die, basically. And um, it was the first time in my life that it struck me that it, you know, that things wouldn't necessarily go on the same as ever. And, and these Terrible things could be lurking around the corner. So that was rather a, a growing up experience for me. Yes, I think it's an interesting um, point in any person's life is that point where you come across a story. Yeah. You know, for some people today, it, it might be through books or it might be through film or a TV show, but something that, uh, you know, maybe at the time is quite scary and quite uh, yes. arresting. Yes. But even if at the time it's a little bit distressing, you tend to find actually as time goes on, people sort of speak about that moment I just spoke almost fondly as if if they realised it was a bit of a turning point, you know. Well, it's very much, I think, a, a part of growing up and sometimes these realisations come upon you slowly. But I think for many of us, it is through the experience of reading something, as in my case, um, Neville Shoots on the Beach. But you're absolutely right. It's a, a very important moment in the whole process of growing up when you suddenly realise the world is not quite the safe place you thought it might have been. 
Yeah, absolutely. And you said, um, you know, that your some of your reading choices may not be um, so popular today, but Enid Blyton, I can say from both this shop, uh, mostly books and where I've worked previously, still very much sells, you know, whether it's Mal- Mallory Towers, um, mm. the famous five, um, the, yeah. the the wishing tree, you know, it's all, it, it's all. Well, I, yes, I mean, I, I, I'm a great subscriber to the belief that in a way, it doesn't really matter too much what young children read, as long as you can get them reading. And of course, in today's yes. world, with all the screen stuff, it's um, probably more of an uphill struggle. Um, but anything that catches a child's imagination and mm-hmm. gets them reading has to be a good thing. Absolutely, absolutely. And yes, we always we always say that at the at the shop that you know it's lovely to suggest to a child you know the books that you enjoyed when. Um, you were younger and sometimes that works but also it's it's important that they can choose the books for themselves as well because if it it grabs their interest then then brilliant well one of the things I enjoy most is taking my grandchildren to a bookshop oh wonderful and and it's lovely watching them choose their books yes yes absolutely and and it's okay I wouldn't expect you to remember sort of titles and things but you know do you look at the books yourselves and you know think about how I don't know how children's books have changed or, or, or... Oh, yes. And I think they've got, I mean, I think there are wonderful books out there. There's so much mm. to choose from. And, um, and of course, a, a lot of them perhaps are more uh, consciously trying to put forward liberal ideas or, uh, you know, to deal with racism and all these things. I don't think any of that was apparent when I was a child. I think it was, um, you know, I grew up in a very, London was very white. And, um, you know, there was, you couldn't get a decent cup of coffee and pasta, as far as I remember, it was rather nasty looking sort of maggot things in brilliant orange sauce in a tin. So it was, (laughs) you know, I'm 73 now. And so we're talking about a very different world. But I think, I think, no, I think children's books are are really amazing today. Mm -hmm. And I think um, the children are are very, today's children are very lucky. as long as one can wean them off their their screens, yes, yes, of course, yeah, yeah. The uh, the 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 forever battle against the, the screens, forever battle, which, yes. yes, yeah, which um many I, I know many adults struggle with as well um, yeah. with themselves. So it's, yes, um, me it's, too. I mean, I yes. you know, especially if you're writing books, you can find that at the end of the day, actually, you know, it's really the last thing you want to do if you've been on your screen and writing to sort of read a book. And I I'm very ashamed of. How little I've read since I started writing myself. It's um, mm. it's really only on holiday and and you know when you're sick or something that I I can really get stuck into a, a, a proper book. I, otherwise, I tend to flit around. It's not something I'm proud of, but it I suspect it happens to quite a lot of us. Yes, absolutely. I think I think because uh, reading does the wonderful thing about reading is it as opposed to let's say watching something on a screen it's a bit of a uh, well not a dance but a collaborative effort you know the writer has written the words down but you you make the pictures in your head you know so absolutely which is why I love listening I really never watch television but I do listen a lot to the radio and I love listening to radio drama because you can direct the play yourself in your head and yes, absolutely, can, yes. Um, summon your own images. So it's it's sort of the same thing there, isn't it? Absolutely. And you know, it's that that's an active thing. So it means, yes, if you've had a, a long day of, you know, doing anything, it can be um it, it you know, it can sometimes require a mustering of energy but it's always to worth pick it. up the book. But as you say, absolutely it is um it is always worth it. Um, and of course, um, for those who come across your work now, whether with um, Travellers in the Third Reich or, or, or your latest one, a, vi- a Village in the Third Reich, will obviously know you for your for your history writing. So was that always was that always an interest, or has that? Yes, I always you know? loved history. I mean, it was absolutely the subject that I, I liked. I liked best at school, but I I certainly never thought of writing history. I mean, I'm complete accident. Um, it was actually, when we were in Japan, we lived there for a, a couple of, well, f- nearly four years in in the mid nineties, and I was persuaded to write a book about what seemed to me a very unpromising subject: a missionary, um, a Victorian missionary, who had built leprosy hospitals in Japan, oh, and okay. um, some Japanese people were very keen that I should write about this in English. And I said, well, you know, I'm not a writer, I'm not a historian, and 
I think we might have problems getting it published. But anyway, to cut a very long story short, it happened. And it introduced me to the delights of hunting in archives, mm. of trying to take one, um, to take quite a big slab of history. In this case, it was really the late 19th century and early 20th century in Japan, mm. and then weave into that some some individual experiences. And so I, I had an enormous um, amount of fun with that, and it, it did get published. And then when I went to, we, we spent 10 years in Cambridge after we left Japan, and I'd enjoyed the whole process of writing this uh, book about the missionaries so much that I thought, well, uh, here I am in Cambridge. I must try and, and do it again. So um, then I, I, I wrote about the, the first woman doctor who nobody had really ever heard of, but I thought anybody who calls himself the first woman doctor must be interesting. Yes, And again, um, for me, the, the, the pleasure of writing about Elizabeth Blackwell, as she was called, was spending so much time in archives, looking at um, primary material. I mean, that's where I get my kicks from, um, is finding out what people wrote there and then and, yes. you know, relating it, as I say, to the bigger picture. So that's really how I got started. And I never in a million years would have expected to end up writing two books about the Third Reich because, I mean, that really is it's a patch of history that's probably been written about more in my lifetime than any other. And um, it certainly wasn't my idea, but um, once I got going and I found out how much material there was, mm. um, then I got the sort of wind in my sails. But it was I would never have had the courage or, or arrogance to suggest that I could write about such a, a massive period of history. But I, I think there is a, a real market now um, for what some people describe as micro-history or grassroots history or whatever you like. In a sense, going back to the Third Reich, we've been through all the great battles and the generals and the heroic stories and so on, of which, of course, there are so many. But I think in today's world, people perhaps are quite interested in in the stories of, of, of I hate that phrase, ordinary people, but you know what I mean, people yes. who are not generals and not heroes, but had to get through this ghastly event somehow. And I think the question I always ask myself, especially in regard to the Third Reich and the Nazis and all the unspeakable horrors that happened there is, well, how would I have acted? What would I have done? And I think, you know, especially with the Nazi period, it's such a black and white period. You think of it being very clearly divided into good and evil. And I think I'm always interested in exploring the gray areas because as we all know, especially me at my grand old age of 73, life is really full of grey and um, one only has to look at one's own life and emotions and evolution to realise that, you know, one changes uh, one's views as one gets exposed to other ideas and different people. And so I am an explorer of the grey area, I think. Yes, which, you know, makes for makes for fascinating reading. I think I think everyone who reads about any particular period in history, but I think particularly with with the Third Reich, you know, does uh, does have that question at the back of their mind of, you know, what would have I have done if if I'd been living or if I was living in a country in which, you know, something like that was happening. Who would I become or what what would I do? And I think that's particularly, I mean, reading A Village in the Third Reich is something that really stands out. It's, um, it, it's easy to, when you're reading about the Second World War on that sort of big level of, you know, about the battles, as you say, to, yes, think about it in very clear terms of, you know, there were, there were the good guys and there were the, the bad exactly. guys. Yeah. Um, but then when you look at this village, you know, you soon realise that, as you say, just how much grey there was and how many people who, on the face of it, you would think were, you know, they were party members. They they could be sort of, you know, seemingly quite sort of signed up Nazis, but actually also have, do things that seem completely out of character. Yes. And I think also another fact to bear in mind is um, a lot of people supported Hitler and the Nazis because Germany was absolutely not for six after the First World War. Yes. And I read a lot of letters that... Um, um, Quakers who were out in Germany immediately after the First World War, and they were traveling around on trains talking to ordinary Germans. And the letters are absolutely fascinating because 
the Germans uh, were, but many of them were starving. They were immersed in grief because of the loss of family members and so on. They had an absolutely hideous time. But what's so interesting from these letters is that what comes through is how the it was their pride, it was the loss of pride that mattered mm. almost more to them than the hunger, the grief, uh, the priva- privations. And so I, I mentioned that because I think it helps to explain why so many Germans supported Hitler, at least in the early 30s when he first came to power, because he seemed to be restoring their pride, putting Germany back at the top table of nations. And that really mattered to people. Yes. Um, and so a lot of people who might might not have liked Hitler very much personally or not approved of all the things that the Nazis were doing, but that mattered to them. And as long as Hitler seemed to be restoring Germany's pride, then they would go along with it. But of course, once he was, and of course, a lot of them also thought that once he was in power, he would sort of calm down, that the anti-Semitism and so on um, would uh, gradually fade away. Of course, as we all know, it actually only got worse. But people didn't know that. And so I think a lot of people who were enthusiastic quite soon realized, wow, what have we done? (laughs) Um, But by then, you know, the moment Hitler was in power, he screwed down the nation. He screwed down people. So anybody who was brave enough to protest would end up in a concentration camp or would lose their job and then their family would suffer. So it, it was... You know, a lot of people say, well, why didn't the Germans stand up to Hitler? So I I think it's a a much more nuanced picture, Mm, certainly than the one that I grew up with. I'm not, I mean, other people may have worked this out uh, long before me, but certainly for me, it was a realization just, uh, you have to think about it in stages. You have to think of people's attitudes to the Nazis and Hitler evolving, I think. But I think the real point is that by the time people decided or realized, as a lot of people did, that how awful the Nazis were. And actually, I should make a distinction here because people tended to remain very loyal to Hitler. may well have hated the people around him and they always blamed the people around him for what went wrong. But Hitler had a sort of godlike image for many people. Nevertheless, everyone knew that if you started bad-mouthing Hitler or the Nazis or anything, you put your life at risk and your family at risk. So I think those are important things to remember when judging people and their behaviour during the Third Reich. Yes, uh, you, we have you know, we have the benefit of hindsight. We we know the end point. It makes me think of that uh, analogy that people use of you know that supposedly if you if you try and put a, a frog in boiling water, it will jump out. But if you pop it in water and slowly turn up the heat, it will remain there indefinitely even as the you know even as the yes. heat gets to that kind of boiling level and i think that's i think that's a very true. powerful analogy i think yeah yes yeah and i think it i think it you know it's it's good to remember that because it's easy to yeah with hindsight to go oh no i you know i would have i would have done things differently and that that applies to you know going beyond you know the third right just anything really yeah there, there is a great tendency um and i suppose it's completely natural that we judge history by today's standards. And you have constantly, which is why I suppose I go on trying to write the history that I do, you have Mm. constantly to put yourself in the mindset of people then who were subject to a whole lot of different mores and ideals and ways of life and attitudes to the ones that we're used to. And even in my lifetime, when I think, you know, it seems to me completely inconceivable that I was 20 years old, I think, by the time homosexuality was made legal. I mean, so, you know, history changes rapidly and people's attitudes do evolve. They may stay the same people fundamentally, but we're all little sponges and we all soak up in a way what's going on around us. Some people are very uh, brave and they stick their heads up above the parapet and Mm. they have clear foresight. But an awful lot of us, and I would have to include myself in this, just tend to sort of, um, you know, trundle along with 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 what's going on at the time. So I think one yes. has to bear that in mind very strongly. Yes, I think the I like the sponges uh, analogy because it's true. Even you know, even uh, e- even since I was you know a, a child, I think politically how things have changed, or you know, certain opinions or views. 
same-sex marriage is another one. Unthinkable yes, yes. when I was, you know, in my 20s or even my 30s. Yes. And um, now, you know, one can't imagine what the world was like before all of it. Before it, yes, yeah. Because once it happens, you know, it's it's quickly uh, accepted. But yes, it's it, it's always, yeah, always good to remember that, you know, things are, things are always on the move and, and that's yeah. a good thing. But, you know, that it means that the moment you're looking even sort of 15 years or 20 years and, and then going further and further back that you're looking at uh, the landscape has changed, you know, okay. you're looking, yeah. You're and looking I think, at- so I think it's worth remembering that. Not, not that I want to whitewash past sins and horrors no no but i think that in terms particularly of the general population's reaction to certain things it is worth remembering that and how they grew up with very different set of um, ideals and modes of behavior from what's current today yes absolutely Uh, i want to we'll we'll go we'll go back to the book and the the process a a bit later on um i I wanted to ask about your reading um you know today you know right yes going from your childhood now now to the present uh what you know what type of books that you you enjoy now or books that you've read recently that you have sort of particularly enjoyed another terrible sin to confess is that i don't read an awful lot of fiction but uh, I, I get sort of terrible guilt about this from uh, time to time. So actually the last book I read um, in, in the summer was um, Alice Munro's Dear Life, a series um, of yes. short stories, which um, I absolutely loved. I mean, I, I, I think what I get from her writing is her ability to show that, you know, quite sort of what seem from the outside quite straightforward and simple lives actually hide all this high drama mm. and, and that, you know, even if you're living somewhere in Canada, which is not a country I know well, you know, you can still go through tremendous um, ups and downs and dramas and, and how she puts at the heart of her book, you know, sort of relationships and love and marriage. And and this takes so many different forms. I mean, I suppose that's obvious, but she somehow does it in a particularly brilliant and striking way. So, um I, I certainly, and I think the short stories, I mean, she's often been described as the Chekhov, hasn't she, of, of, yes, of modern absolutely. life. And, 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 you know, I, I love Chekhov. And so, yes, um, she's the last book I've read. Um, and I'm not very good at reading novels because I quite often start off and then get bored or interrupted. And I've occasionally joined book clubs, but then <laughs> find myself reading books that I don't particularly want to read and I think why am I doing this and yes, um, yeah. <laughs> and then I've forgotten it anyway um a couple of weeks later so but I do re- I've always read a lot of history obviously and um but I do find that for the last 30 years I've mostly been engaged in trying to write a book myself and I tend to do an awful lot of reading around that um of course yes so, um my my reading is, is as I said earlier in this conversation I'm feel rather ashamed of how little I read and this program this podcast is is encouraging me to turn over a new leaf and go no. and start reading a lot more <laughs> no but of course you know as you know there's no whether it's fiction or it's non-fiction you know we don't um there's no hierarchy of you know no, hierarchy of, of reading and uh, you know as you say a big part of your process and the, it sounds like the part that you enjoy the most is the the archival, you know, yes. going through the archives. And I, one thing that struck me when reading A Village in the Third Reich it, it is thinking in terms of the uh, the work is you must start start off with, you know, the amount that you read for such a project must be huge. And I imagine a lot of the skill or the difficulty becomes then editing that down and so right jack creating a narrative from that i i often describe myself more as a weaver than a writer because um Um, yes it's it's the 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 real sort of challenge doing the sort of history that i try to do is weaving all this individual experience into you know the the world story and um to do that without sort of sounding like you're doing clunking changes of gear is it's, it's be really hard. Um, yes. But I, I sometimes think of myself as a, as, a, as a sort of Miss Marple because a lot of it is, and that's perhaps why I, come the evening I 
I don't sit down and read as much as I'd like to because I spend so much of the day chasing things, looking yes. for things, reading bits of books, uh, following them up, trying to track down the papers or the personal view. And um, so that, that, that is enormously satisfying, especially mm. when you come across something. And I think almost my favorite way of spending a day is to end up some obscure public record office somewhere like Wigan or somewhere. And um, um, you wait and they bring you your box, which is, sometimes it's an old cardboard box tied yes. up with string. And you're pretty sure that nobody's looked inside that box since it was deposited in the archives. And you open it up and you have no idea what you're going to find. It's like a sort of time travel too, because yes. if you're looking at what people wrote there and then, they haven't filtered it, filtered it with no, no. subsequent history. And see, it's like a time travel. It's like a snapshot. And um, some of it is very crass. Some of it is quite boring and lots of it is repetitive. But it, you end up with a real sense of the period you're reading about. Um, and I, I don't think there's any other way that does it so um, completely, at least not for me anyway. Yes, it, mu it must be a thrill, I think particularly if you're looking at something, you know, handwritten. Exactly. To think that, you know, this is, that you're probably actually one of few people who have sat down and taken the time to read through that. And to also see the, you know, these people living through events that have, I mean, for us now, they've they've almost entered the realm of um, mythology almost, you know, the, the way sometimes, you know, the, let's say the second world war is talking talking about you know because there's been so many films there's been so yeah. much kind of entering the kind of collective narrative um of, of you know of of the country or you know of the world you know to then suddenly see a letter where someone's going about their very sort of mundane life while all this is going on yes well i, I wrote a book about the foreigners who lived in peking in the first half of the 20th century Mm. And of course, they would sort of sit down once a week to try and summarize all the extraordinary things that have been happening in Peking and write back to their families. And that that has sadly gone now. I mean, you know, um, I mean, this is a subject people talk about a lot, but it's really quite hard to know how this kind of history, there's so much material, there's so many emails and so much on film and so on that it's, it's a, this 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 sort of rather narrow window of history where people depended still on communication by letters. And yes. because they tried to summarize their lives in a way that nobody would do today with the um, instant email or, or um, no, of course, or, or text or whatever it is that people use. So um, yes, I, I, I think it's a, you know, it's, it's not great history, but I think it has its role in helping people understand really what it was like to be there then in a particular place at a particular time yes and do you do you think sorry it's just a, a very interesting thought that um you know someone doing your job in let's say you know 80 years time who's trying to look back on today for whatever reason will have a a much more difficult task because we you know the nature of digital communication means that while it's instant and it's numerous you know we we communicate within the space of a day, multiple different ways on multiple different platforms now. Um, but of course, that lasts really only as, la as long as the technology does and can quite easily be... There have been some very good projects, certainly um, at the British Library, I think, and at Churchill College to record oral history. Um, so that, that will be a, a big resource. But it's that, again, it's somebody sitting down to do a formal presentation about their life or their job or whatever yes, it is. Yes. The glorious thing about the sort of research I do is these people were not writing for posterity. They were just no. writing about the world as they saw it at that particular moment. And so that, I think, will be lost because, I don't know, perhaps people will leave their hard drives to archives, but it's going yes. to be a, a very different kind of take on history to the one that I've been absorbed with over the last couple of decades. Of course, yes, yeah. I suppose it will just it will adapt, won't it? That it always know, does. It yes, always exactly. Does. Yeah, it's yeah, it's um, you know, no matter how much changes, yeah, adaptation is is um is the key to that. So I have it's a rather big question, 
And uh, I always say on every podcast, I always say, I always feel bad for asking this question because I feel it's one I would struggle to answer myself. And it's that it's a book that changed your life. Um, well, yes, I, I thought she, when you told me that you were going to ask me about that and also the book that everyone should read, I've actually given it all quite a lot of thought. And <laughs> I'm slightly embarrassed to say this, but the book that quite literally changed my life and it's not a book I would seek to recommend to anybody, but it was the first book I ever wrote called The Story of Furniture. I was working in the um, Furniture and Woodwork Department in yes. the DNA, and the telephone rang one day, and it was Hamlin saying, we've got this book, we've got all the photographs, we've sold it, but we, have, we forgot to ask anybody to write it. So I said, oh, I'll do that. And um, it's not a particularly good book, and I'm certainly <laughs> plugging it. But the reason it changed my life was because Hamlin's paid me the princely sum of £400, which back in the 70s was worth a lot more than it is now. But yes. instead of paying off my debts, which is what I should have done, I blew it all on going to China. And oh. this was in 1975, when it was almost impossible to get to China. It was still a cultural revolution. Yes. And that's where I met my husband, who is um, working in the British Embassy there. So um, th that really did quite literally change my yes, life. Change your um, life, yeah. But you also asked, and perhaps I'm jumping the gun here. No, 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 no. That Please. everyone should read, and that—that's a tough question. Um, and I, having given it quite a lot of thought, came to the conclusion that it was a book. Again, I read when I was quite young, and have returned to several times. Was Edmund Goss's Father and Son? Yes. Edmund Goss, um, as I'm sure your listeners all know, was a a critic and a writer. I think most of his writings have probably fairly obscure now, but he is definitely remembered for this book, Father and Son, because he grew up in a, a very religious sect. I think it was the Plymouth Brethren. And um, his parents were obviously good people and, you know, he wasn't treated cruelly or anything. And he obviously had a deep affection for his father, but it, it was such a restrictive and um, unnecessarily uh, unimaginative uh, childhood. And I, I think his own words, and I think this is why I feel so strongly about this book, because it's so relevant today. And I, I think he says it much better than I could. He says, let me speak plainly. After my long experience, after my patience and forbearance, I have surely the right to protest against the untruth that evangelical religion or any religion in a violent form is a a wholesome or valuable or desirable adjunct to human life. It divides heart from heart. It sets up a vain chimerical ideal in the barren pursuit of which all the tender, indulgent affections, all the genial play of life, all the exquisite pleasures and soft resignations of the body, all that enlarges and calms the soul are exchanged for what is harsh, void and negative. It encourages a stern and ignorant spirit of condemnation. It throws altogether out of gear the healthy movement of the conscience. It invents virtues which are sterile and cruel. It invents sins which are no sins at all, but which darken the haven, heaven of innocent joy with futile clouds of remorse. So I, I, I think what I'm saying is I'm not anti-religion in any sense, but I, I think it's so important. Um, I'm in, I, I hate extremism in any form, and certainly when it, imposes with violence uh, a, a mode of living on others. So, I, I mean, that's stating the obvious, but, you know, it's a message that can never be said enough, really, in today's yes, world. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for reading that out. That was that was a beautiful quote. We don't... Sorry, it's rather a long quote. No, um, no, 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 no. It's, it, it was, uh, no, it was wonderful. We um, it much more eloquently than I could. No, but it it is it's beautifully put, and it's a great example of how um you know in in books it you know it doesn't matter when it was written that it you can find those um those snippets that just they speak to all times and all places, Absolutely. and um a message a message like that never never ages you know it remains true. And of course, there are so many books that have have that. I mean, that's the glorious thing, isn't it, about reading is that you can pick up a published in the 16th century or yes, even yes. And, and you'll suddenly hit upon this truth that is just as relevant today as it was when it was written 
you know, absolutely. I mean, I, f- I find that, you know, when I'm rereading something like Jane, you know, Jane Austen, you know, yes, a yes. fiction book. And I think, you know, some of the characters in that and you think, well, I've, I've met that person, you know, yes. they. Didn't she they understand live- human nature? She And it, yes. human nature doesn't really change. It has no. different, different clothes on, but she absolutely got it. And Trollope did, of course, as well. I think. Yes. Yeah. And it's just that wonderful thing of, you know, thinking that coming across a character from yes a completely different century which could could feel like a you know a, a foreign country as they say you know that it, yeah, it's yeah. a foreign country but actually you think no i i've met that person in the shops just yesterday yes, um exactly. or I, I went to school with that person you know it, it, it's yeah. um it's a yeah it's one of the wonderful it, things about one of the things that unites human beings across the ages you know it makes you feel you're not you we necessarily live in our own little slot mm. but reading and for me also music expands it so that one feels this connection with the human race you know um philip larkin did that very well I yes think, when he that wonderful poem about being in a in an in a church and i think he was an atheist but you know it was that sense of linking in with generations and generations of people who'd knelt in that particular chest yes. and yes um, so yeah. I think, of course books uh, above all help us do that um, shake hands across the centuries or whatever yes yeah absolutely and yes you've you've meant uh, you um you'd mentioned uh, previous previous to me not on this um recording that um that yes music is a, is another great a great passion of yours by the sounds of it yes no i i, I spend an awful lot of time at wigmore hall um, i'm lucky enough to live quite close to it and um you know there again you you sense people's sadnesses and tragedies and and joys you know you can sort of unite and hear them i mean the composers like schubert it's almost like listening to an autobiography you can feel the emotions that he's going through and um so i yes i i do get a lot of pleasure out of out of music yes and there's um there's a, a wonderful um well a very interesting um part in um in a village in the Third Reich, where you know music is uh, music is important to the soul, but it's it, it's also a form of um you know it, it can be used in lots of different ways. And propaganda, yes, yeah, exactly. propaganda, and uh, it was just very interesting reading about um you know the villages, their local sort of band or orchestra, yes. as it were, yes. you know the struggle that happened there, where they wanted them replaced with these professionals that would play you know kind of Nazi. Uh, uh, I can't think of the word I'm trying to say, like yeah, agreed but, music. Yes, exactly. I'm glad you picked up on that because I thought it was a rather touching story. And yes, the villagers, although they still on the whole at that stage approved of Hitler, were not going to be kicked around by this nasty little upstart Nazi mayor. It was really yes. interesting how they could be uh, supporting Hitler still, but were not prepared to give up their independence to... No, no. So that was, I thought, an interesting insight into human nature. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you you see that throughout the throughout the book, you know, this um, this small village, which, you know, it had it had its, um, uh, you know, certain systems in place, like the um, the the common council, was it was it called? Yes, the the village council. Yes. You know, and the common land as well. That was, you know, that that had to be, you know, and and you realise how, you know, all of these things that you think, oh, you know, that uh, you would think without reading a book like this or, you know, well, surely these people then wouldn't be up for, you know, totalitarian Hitler. But of course, they didn't know that would be, the, you know, no. that would be the case. And, and then when the reality hit them um, a few months later in the shape of this very idealistic Nazi mayor who was completely uh, subscribed to National Socialism and yes. he had to implement Hitler's very rigid rules about um, conforming to National Socialism. Of course, the villagers didn't like it one bit. They'd voted for Hitler, but that didn't mean that they'd signed up to her giving away their autonomy. Yes, and so yes, another yeah, a, a good a good lesson again in in the fact that you know again we have hindsight, but of course you know for them yeah, you know they had no no reason necessarily to believe that over oh, you know, a crystal ball wouldn't that make yes life exactly, um, and it, it's wonderful to read as well about the um you know because I think we know about you know people in the the resistance um and uh, i think many people um maybe i'm more alerting my own ignorance here but i think many people would 
would think that anyone who resisted in any way would have ended up either leaving the country or would have ended up in in one of the camps somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. But of course, you realise that you know that there were these people that, in their everyday lives, lives, even if they were finding just small ways, you know, I think of the the headmaster at the local mm, school, mm, mm, ju- mm. you know, found small ways of of kind of alerting at least to maybe those in the know that you know, no, this I don't agree with everything here, or finding ways of you know fighting the the want to. I think you use a line um, earlier on in the book about you know that. Nazism wanted to, you know, work its way into every aspect Absolutely. of a person's life, um, and of course, people did resist that. Yes, no, I think that that is 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 one of the. I mean, to me, that was one of the interesting aspects of doing the research of this book is to see that it was actually possible to be um, a paid-up member of the Nazi Party, but actually not be a Nazi at all. And it, of course, it was a subtlety that when the Americans uh, occupied Bavaria. In the um, um, uh, immediately after the war, well, the French were there first for a few months, but then the Americans took over, and of course, it was you know they'd seen the soldiers coming there and occupying Germany, had seen all the Nuremberg rally films, they'd seen these fanatical Germans, so they assumed that there were Nazis behind every tree, and of course, there was an element of the SS, particularly, uh, and you know, absolutely fanatical Nazis um, who were there right at the end. Um, they were actually fairly small in number, but it was enough to frighten the Americans who were very yes. nervous about, uh, you know, Nazi resistance after the war ended. Um, so it, it is interesting to see these multifaceted reactions to, to, to the Nazis and how the villagers coped and how they... And I, I think, though, they found it very hard to really face up at the end to the whole question of national guilt and their yes. own. I think they tended to concentrate all their energies on trying to get their lives back together again. So it it took perhaps longer than it should have done for people to face up to the enormity of what they had signed up to when they voted in Hitler and the uh, and, and national socialism. Um, but I think since then, Germany has done a, an absolutely incredible job on oh yes but uh, and that's beyond question they've been really impeccable but i think there is still more work to be done (laughs) i'm not saying this just because um i and my collaborator katy patel happened to have uh, produced a book about um a village but i think that there is a lot more work and research to be done at the village and town level because every small community had its own reaction its own set of circumstances so I yes. think it's probably quite a, a rich um, uh, field of research. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, to, yeah, just to think of all the individual stories out there, um, mm. you know, it's um, probably endless, you know, probably endless research could, you know, could go, yeah. go into that area. Even when you just think of the stories that you hear growing up, you know, I think of my grandmother who lived through the war, you know, every every family has its own individual story, which... But of course, it's getting fainter now. I mean, yes. it's, it's getting on for what's it, eighty odd years now since it. So, um, you know, that's where these letters and um, and memoirs and some of them often in people's attics or wherever they suddenly become uh, much more important because yes, they are absolutely. The, as, as you know, as people die. My mother died last November, aged one hundred and one, oh, and wow. um, she had actually spent seven months in Germany. In 1937, oh, she was okay. studying. She wanted to study languages, and she uh, started in Germany. Um, but I found her diary, and you know, it was so interesting. Um, she was too old to remember, and I mean, I knew it about it roughly. But but it's an example of how important it is to to conserve letters and diaries. And oh, you know, often people think, "Oh, I've got Aunt Hetty's letters in a suitcase. I don't know what to do with them. Let's get rid of them." So I would plead with anybody who is faced with knowing what to do with some relations papers before you chuck them just go and talk to your local archive and see if it's something that they're interested in yes of course yeah and anyway even if you want to keep you can always digitalize things now so you can always keep your own record but i do think it's worth preserving 
letters, diaries, memoirs in a in an archive, if you if you possibly can. Yes, you know we don't always know that um, we might be living through interesting times, or that what we have to say about that is interesting. You know, and it's easy to think your own family member. Oh, you know, they were just an ordinary. You know, this term, ordinary person. Oh, Jack, that is such an important point because yes. even something as mundane as a shopping list, you know, yes. in a hundred years' time, is interesting. Yes, so exactly. You're, you're, yes. You, I'm very glad you made that point. Um, it, it's a really important one. So it's not for us to judge what's interesting, but I would just recommend that people try and find a, a safe place to deposit such things where they yes. will be preserved for um for the future absolutely and um one thing i want to ask as well is just uh, you know how how has it been in the sense of you know because um travelers in the third reich it was um actually interceded with um with me starting as as a bookseller i started in in 2017 and you know it was a a huge it was a huge hit you know it it did you know it did very well i'm just always interested in you know speaking to authors you know what you know what was that like for you on your side you know having this because you know you had been in the archives you had done all the work and of course people don't always realize that when they're reading a book they're actually already a, a, on a timeline that started years before yes you know how is it then to suddenly realize all these people are reading it and oh and engaging i mean with unbelievable it? as i say i fell into writing by accident for me, it was a wonderful, wonderful hobby. I mean, I was very pleased. I got my books published and, you know, even got the occasional review. I, it never occurred to me I would ever move on from that at all. And I was perfectly happy with that. You know, I wasn't yes, sort of yes, of course, expecting yeah. great success or anything. So Travellers completely took me by surprise. I had, I was, you know, I'm still gasping. <laughs> but I think it's less to do with me. I think it's much more to do with the fact that um, it brings history, that, that approach, I'm not saying I, I'm particularly brilliant at it, but I think that the approach um, is one that has probably found its time. It's something that, you know, resonates yes. with people. Um, and so maybe it was just like my timing was just lucky. Um, and I could not have been more astonished. And I still remain totally astonished <laughs> that it, it it has done well um so um you know and especially as i was quite i'm you know i'm quite old now I, you you don't really expect to start having a success when you're um in your late 50s or whatever i was um so um yeah it was it was delightful and i can't pretend i wasn't very pleased yes of course of course absolutely i mean that's the the wonderful thing i think again particularly about writing you know from all the people i've in, you know interviewed on this podcast is you know obviously with you know if you're something like a, a sports person everything's obviously going to happen in the sort of the first kind of quarter of your life but you know people can be writing for years and then suddenly something pops up and they think oh my goodness you know everyone's you know everyone's reading this or or some people don't you know yeah don't start writing until later on until they've had families and you know things like that as in my case i mean the only thing about it which is the downside is that i and i feel this with travelers as much as anything else i've you know i can't bear to read anything i've written because also it's it's there you can't i mean i'm a great editor i go on fiddling and fiddling yes, and okay, words yes. forever and ever and suddenly it's there and you think oh god i wish i hadn't written that or i wish i it was, uh, of course, it took yes, too long yeah. there, or you know, and I'm sure everybody who publishes a book feels the same way. I mean, I, I will, I will perfectly admit, I was um, this morning. I was listening back to one of my podcast recordings. I just wanted to check something, and I think it with any anything you do, if it's your words, whether it's coming from you personally in a recording or whether it's written down, there's a, a very particular type of um pain and sort of embarrassment yes. that comes from you know you're, even if it's something that you're proud of you're still there's a part of you that thinks oh why did I say it like yeah, that yeah exactly or, or I could have done it better. but I find it so interesting I don't know whether you'd agree with this Jack um but you know when it comes to actual writing I find that it's often I, I often spend the longest wondering whether to use the definite or the indefinite article or which preposition to use or fiddling around with little tiny words to get the flow right or and sometimes yes. a sentence which when you read it in the book it looks perfectly sort of unobtrusive normal sentence and I still remember oh god it took me a week to get that one right yes yeah <laughs> do you ever find that 
Uh, I think absolutely. And I, I think that's something, you know, maybe people don't realize about writing because, you know, there's a great many people for whom, you know, they, they're just readers um, writing themselves, you know, they, they wouldn't have a an interest in. And I think any, any piece of writing, even the most basic sentence actually is the product of a lot of work. Um, yeah. Sometimes that work happens from speaking to other authors. Sometimes that work happens kind of intuitively. It's kind of going on, you know, in yes. the brain somewhere. And then sometimes it's very conscious because you can come across, you know, a sentence that just you need it to happen but and you you need it to get to a certain point, but actually getting it there is um Oh, you're so right. That absolutely you absolutely put your finger on it. But I mean, I, I must admit I really enjoy the process of writing. People often ask, you know, whether you prefer where I prefer to do the research or the writing. But for me, they're absolutely dovetailed. I mean, until I've done some research, I've got no material to write about. But equally, I can't really make sense of the research until I start trying to put it down on paper. So yes. um, I, I find doing the two together is, for me, the most satisfying way of, of, of approaching a, a project. Yes. And again, I imagine with that, you end up with something that's sort of bigger than the final. Oh, yes. I can't do proposals for publishers at all because (laughs) I have absolutely no idea where I'm headed. And mostly I don't usually know an awful lot about the subject until I start writing about it. But then once you're in, you know, every tiny little scrap of information becomes important. And that's another problem, particularly perhaps with this kind of writing is, you know, if you've spent all day in a slightly chilly archives, but you've only got one bit of information out of it, you're rather keen to use it, even if it's of course, yes, <laughs> not yeah, that important. So one has to be rigorous and very disciplined when it comes to not using some favourite little nugget of information just Absolutely. because you like it. <laughs> I imagine, you know, I, I can imagine, but maybe this is because you know, I I, I don't think I'd have the organisational um, abilities for this type of work. But I can imagine you're writing something, and suddenly you think, oh, actually this would be a perfect place to put that snippet I read three weeks ago. And then you're thinking, actually, wait, wh- where was that? You yeah, know, oh, tell where me. have I put that? Or yes. Tell yeah. me about it. I remember <laughs> weeks and months I've spent since I started writing hunting and I can see where it was on the page or I can sit, but I yes. can't find it. Oh, yes. It no, be... I, 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 I think anybody who, who writes probably, it would write history, certainly <laughs> suffers from that. Certainly I do. Well, uh, yes, we'll understand. Um, we'll understand that pain. Um, well, uh, Julia, I think that's brought us to the end of our conversation. I want to thank you so much for joining us here at Mostly Books Meets. A Village in the Third Ripe is out now, currently in hardback, and is available from uh, Mostly Books, both in the store and online. But is also available from your own local bookshop as well, wherever you're listening to this. Jack, it's been such a delight to talk to you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure, Julia. Thank you so much. All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Mostly Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because apparently it helps people find us.